For those of you who do not know me, my name is Micah. Good morning and welcome to Northfield Christian Fellowship. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamum today in Revelation chapter 2. Doug actually preached last week. He preached what was supposed to be this week's sermon last week because he had a scheduling conflict. So now I'm preaching last week's sermon this week. It's kind of like the game of Twister, sermon style. So let's pray, though, before I begin. Oh, Lord, come make us humble as we just sang. Uh, these letters to the church, um, all of them have comforting encouragements and compliments. Help us to receive those encouragements humbly. All of them have hard rebukes and confrontations and help us to receive those humbly with repentance, I pray in your son's name, amen. When you hear the word compromise, what's your initial reaction? I mean, do you, do you think compromise is a good thing or a bad thing? We're, most of us in here are Christians, so I'm guessing most of us think of compromise as a bad thing because as Christians, we are not to compromise, right? But what about when you cannot come to an agreement? It happens in all sorts of situations. What do you do when you and your spouse can't agree on where to go out to eat? You want to go out for steak. She wants to go out for chicken. So you compromise. You have salmon instead, right? Because you wanted red meat. She wanted white meat. Salmon's pink meat. You compromise. Now you're both unhappy. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> or compromise. <laughs> but what about... Businesses, they routinely compromise. The CEO wants to grow the company. The CFO wants to shrink the company. The president wants to rebrand the company. The board wants to sell the company. So what do they do? They compromise. They grow the company overseas. They shrink the company here in America. They rebrand the company. Say it used to be called Acme Shoe Company. Now it's Woohoo New Shoe. And they sell the company to China. Compromise. Now, everybody is equally unhappy. Politics. You think anything gets done in the world of politics without compromise? We don't like compromise, but anybody in any sort of decision-making uh, position will acknowledge that compromise is sometimes essential to get things done. And it's not always a bad thing. All of us do it. We do it in negotiations. We do it in relationships. We do it as citizens. But there is one place where we are not to compromise. God's word. We're not to compromise the doctrinal truths of God that are taught in his word. And we are also not to compromise the moral law of God given in his word. And sadly, we see that happening in churches all over the place today, in both of those areas, churches often accept and sometimes even celebrate false teaching and immorality among professing Christians in the name of unity and tolerance. This struggle goes all the way back to the earliest churches. We're going to see it today in the church in Pergamum. Let's read about it in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. 
And the angel to the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum is the northernmost of the seven cities that are written to here in these first couple chapters in Revelation. Pergamum was a glamorous city. It was full of culture and flair. In fact, the Roman writer Pliny, he wrote of um, Pergamum, calling it the most distinguished city in Asia. It was big. It had a population of about 200,000 people. And what set Pergamum apart was its library. I don't get excited about libraries. I get more excited about a trip to Taco Bell than I do the library. But back then, 2,000 years ago, when books did not exist, this was a luxury, a library was extravagant. And Pergamum's library was the second largest library in the world at that time. It was second only to Alexandria in Egypt. The library in Pergamum had 200,000 volumes. This was a big city with culture. Along with this culture came lots of temples. Pergamum had temples to Athena, to Dionysus, to Asclepios, and to Zeus. And they had the first ever temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar. That temple overshadowed all the other temples. Pergamum was the center for emperor worship throughout So the church in Pergamum was surrounded by all sorts of worldliness. And Jesus' words to this church, they take on a format that is similar with all seven churches. The first thing Jesus does with each of these churches is to identify himself with some unique, relevant characteristic to that church. So here in verse 12, Jesus begins his letter to Pergamum saying, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... He could have simply said the words of Jesus, but he didn't. He said the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, because our God is not boring. John saw the sword in chapter 1 when Jesus appeared to him on the island of Patmos, and John said from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. John sees it again in the future, in chapter 19 of Revelation, when Christ returns riding on a white horse. John says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. In his gospel, John calls Jesus the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's fitting here that Jesus reminds this church in Pergamum that he is 
the two-edged sword that cuts to the truth because this church is apparently not so good at cutting to the truth. But before Jesus discusses their faults, he first compliments them for their strengths. He encourages them in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's, thrones, uh, Satan's throne could allude to any number of things in Pergamum. It could be their altar to Zeus. You know, I just mentioned that they had several temples in Pergamum. Their temple to Zeus, they had this massive altar to Zeus. It was 120 feet long. It was 18 feet high. And Zeus, being the highest of all the false gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon, maybe that's what Jesus was referring to. But Satan's throne could also be a reference to the temple of Asclepios. Asclepios was the god of healing, and he was depicted as a serpent. That's why the medical symbol today has two serpents on it. The temple of Asclepios was filled with live snakes, and people would come and lie on the floor, hoping that one of these serpents would them, because they believed if that happened, then they would be healed of whatever disease they had. So the symbology of the serpent there in Pergamum would also bring to mind Satan's throne. Or it could be the fact that Pergamum had become the center for emperor worship. The tradition that Roman emperors were to be worshipped as gods, it started here in this city of Pergamum. And it was a major problem for Christians. Christians were not persecuted for refusing to worship the gods of Greco-Roman mythology, but they were persecuted for refusing to worship the emperor. Any one of these practices, or all of these practices combined, they could describe Satan's throne in verse 13. That verse continues, it says, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I'm giving up on this. Can you get next slide, please? <clears throat> Thank you. So the church in Pergamum, they were surrounded by worldly wickedness. They were located where his throne is, and yet they held fast the name of Jesus. They did not deny the faith. That's impressive. That's a serious compliment, especially in the light of the persecution that they were facing there. The first great persecution of Christians happened around A.D. 67 under the emperor Nero. Christians were treated horribly at that time. They were blamed for things that they didn't commit. They were tortured. They were killed. Most of that happened in Rome, though. But the second great, great persecution happened under the emperor Domitian about 15 years later. And that time of persecution spread beyond Rome. It spread throughout the Roman Empire. It was during this great persecution, even to the point of seeing Antipas, one of their church members, killed, that they still held fast the name of Christ. According to church uh, tradition, Antipas was encased inside a red-hot brass container in the shape of a bull. 
and he was roasted to death inside this brass bowl. Jesus here calls him my faithful witness. Can you imagine the eternal honor of being called my faithful witness? This church by false religion in a metropolitan high life, they were praised by Christ for, for holding fast to his name and not denying his faith, even to the point of death. Would I be? Would our church be? That's impressive. But, says Jesus in verse 14, He says, I have a few things against you. The two-edged sword is now about to cut to the truth. He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam was a prophet in the book of Numbers who was willing to use his gift of prophecy for money. So the king of Moab during this time, his name was Balak. Balak hired Balaam to curse the Israelites as they were coming through Moab. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, only blessings came out. God would not allow Balaam to curse the Israelites. So instead, Balaam told Balak, hey, instead just get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men. And you'll get them then to sacrifice to their gods too. And sure enough, it didn't take long before they were sleeping with the Moabite women and they were worshiping their false god, Baal. And so now here in Pergamum, Jesus says, you have some there who are doing the same thing. They're compromising the doctrine of God and they're compromising the moral law of God. The two areas where Christians are not to compromise. Eating food sacrificed to idols was seen as an act of worshiping the idols. It was a major issue for the early church, especially for the Gentile believers whose families and social circles all practiced local idol worship. It was also common that the meat sold in the market served by a host would have first been used for idol sacrifice. So for a person to avoid it, he had to just about avoid all socializing which made it really tempting for the people in this church to compromise. What's the big deal about what this meat was used for? It's not worth making a fuss over and losing my family, my my friends, my job, my reputation over. They had the same temptation regarding worshiping the emperor. The only thing required of them was to burn a little incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And then they wouldn't have to deal with any more persecution. What's the harm in burning some stupid incense on Caesar? It's just a formality, right? Antipas refused to compromise and he was killed for it. But some people in that church took an easier way out. They compromised. Because a little compromise can make life so much easier. Just a little compromise, it makes life so much easier. James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
For so you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas, who was one of the original seven deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6. And somewhere along the way, the followers of Nicholas, they drifted away from Christianity and pursued pleasure using grace as their excuse. Hey, we're saved by grace. Who cares how I live? They abused the Bible's teaching on Christian freedom to the point that they would participate in pagan orgies and idol worship. The early church father, Irenaeus, he spoke of the Nicolaitans saying they lived lives of strained indulgence. Compromise. What's the big deal? The church in Pergamum as a whole, they held fast to the name of Jesus. But they were still guilty because they tolerated false worship and immorality by some in the church instead of practicing church discipline. What would Jesus say if he were speaking to our church today? The two things that he condemns the church in Pergamum for, idol worship, worshiping anything other than God, and sexuality. Those two things, they define the church today. Idol worship, we worship ourselves now. And we sleep with whoever and whatever we want. And, and I'm talking about the global church, but our own church is not immune to these things. Let's look at the church today. The Christian church used to preach heavily on holiness, sometimes neglecting grace. The church today preaches heavily on grace to the point of neglecting holiness. Christian music. Are they to glorify our Savior, or are they just meant for us, to make us feel good, to make us feel better about ourselves? Who is church about today? Is church about Jesus, or is it about you, to make you feel better? You are so special. You are victorious. God is so in love with you. And as soon as church is over, those same special, victorious, loved people go home to surf porn and promote themselves on Instagram and find their next relationship on Tinder. The issue of homosexuality alone has three major denominations in the Protestant world. Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Mennonite. You name the denomination. It's had a split over those who adhere to God's word and those who want to accept sexual immorality and sometimes even celebrate it. Compromise. I look at our local church here today, Northfield, I'm really thankful to fellowship with you guys. You're a godly group of believers. Like the church in Pergamum, you hold fast to the name of Jesus. And you do not deny the faith. So many of you are an example. In the home, in the workplace, in the school, in our community, you're a light. But where do you compromise? Where do I compromise? 
Even our church has some who hold the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We have some who compromise God's doctrine and God's moral law. Because a little compromise can make life so much easier. Verse 16, therefore repent. The teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, worshiping anything other than God and sexual immorality, they are sin. Turning a blind eye toward those who practice it inside the church is sin. And there is only one correct way to deal with sin. Not by ignoring it. Not by trying to make yourself feel better. Not by seeking encouragement and comfort in the middle of your sin. But by repentance. Therefore, Jesus says to this church. That was tough for the church in Pergamum. I wonder if it's even tougher for the church today because we live in a culture that worships tolerance. Tolerance today is seen as the highest virtue, so much so that we've come to believe that being soft on sin is actually loving when it is, in fact, sinful. The church today has glorified wimpiness. We're so afraid of standing up for correct doctrine and for moral purity that we've lost our... Instead, we say, who am I to judge? Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for tolerating sin within their congregation, saying, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul didn't write this to be heartless and cruel. He wrote it to be loving. Because it is not loving to condone sin. It is not loving to make it easy for those in sin to remain in such a hopeless place. A church unwilling to sin is a church unable to resist compromise. Let me repeat that. A church unwilling to confront sin is a church unable to resist compromise. Repeating the error of the church in Pergamum. A Christian in persistent sin does not need comfort. They need conviction. The way to have conviction is to feel the weight and misery of your sin. The goal of the church is not to comfort those in persistent sin. It must be to convict in sin. You want to experience comfort as a Christian? Repent. That is where you will find true comfort. David wrote in the Psalms, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. He didn't say, search me, O God, and tell me I'm so special and make me feel good about myself. He said, see if there be any grievous way in me so that he could repent. Because there's no comfort from sin outside of repentance. 
Verse 6, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Pergamum's own church member, Antipas, he refused to compromise, and he felt the sword of Rome as a result. But if this church did not repent, they would feel the sword of Christ. And Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In the 1600s, there was a a Puritan named John Bunyan. He preached in England. When he started preaching in for a short time, a republic. But in 1660, it once again returned to being a monarchy under King Charles II. And King Charles immediately redesignated the Church of England as the only acceptable religion. And so it became illegal to preach outside the walls of the Anglican Church. So as a result, John Bunyan was arrested for preaching without a license. The judge sympathized with Bunyan. He offered to release him immediately if he would simply promise to stop preaching. To which John Bunyan replied, If you release me today, I shall preach tomorrow. His crime carried a three-month sentence. But he ended up spending the next 12 in prison because he refused to stop preaching. At any point, John Bunyan could have simply promised not to preach anymore, and he would have been released. John Bunyan wrote two books while he was in prison for those 12 years. His first book was called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. This man, who was so godly that he chose prison over not preaching the gospel, he titled his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. His second book remains today the best-selling Christian time, with the exception of the Bible itself, Pilgrim's Progress. If you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, read it. It's an easy-to-understand allegory. And in this masterpiece, the main character, whose name is Christian, throughout his journey, he fights the temptation to compromise. John Bunyan wrote this book while in prison for refusing to compromise. You guys remember the name James Coates? Rick, when he preached in February, he mentioned him. James Coates, of Grace Life Church up in Edmonton, Alberta, up in Canada. He was arrested and jailed just this year, back in February, because he refused to stop preaching at his church. And before they, asked, before they put him in jail, they asked him to sign a letter promising not to preach anymore, to which James Coates echoed John Bunyan's words, If you release me today, I shall preach tomorrow. So after a little bit more than a month in prison, Canada released him and dropped all but one of their charges, for which he's got to go back to court this month for. However, just a couple of weeks ago, the authorities put up a fence around the church to keep him from preaching. James Coates was willing to go to prison for refusing to compromise. Here's what awaits those who refuse to compromise. Verse 17. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Three blessings written in this verse to the one who conquers. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Manna was the bread-like substance that God provided for the Israelites during the time of Moses while they were in the desert for 40 years. It's what kept them alive. And during this time, God commanded them also to keep a jar of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God dwelt among his people. So that hidden manna that was inside the Ark of the Covenant, it was in the very presence of God. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. When the unbelieving crowd asked Jesus to give them a sign saying that Moses had given them manna, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger nor thirst. In other words, Jesus is the hidden manna. He gives life in the very presence of God. How about the white stone? The Romans during this time would award white stones to their athletes. It was their version of a medal or a ribbon. And back then it was given to the winner. Not to everybody. You didn't get a white stone as a participation trophy. You got it as an award for victory. In the new name, these white stones have the person's name engraved upon it. It made the award personal, but it was more than that. It also served as his admissions pass to different banquets and celebrations. The stone that God gives will have a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it, it says. God promised this new name back in the book of Isaiah. He said, you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. This new name makes our award personal. It will be our admissions passed into God's eternal banquet. You see, you and I can talk all day long about not compromising as Christians. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we are routinely tempted to compromise our faith and our morals. And Jesus doesn't simply tell this church in Pergamum, don't compromise. He reminds them and he reminds us why we should hold fast his name. What awaits us is hidden manna Life in the presence of God. A white stone awarded with a new name engraved upon it. No longer Micah or Christy or Ken or Yuki, but a personally chosen name from the God who personally chose you. That's what awaits those who refuse to compromise. Where do you compromise? Therefore, repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are worthy. You are worthy of our all, and our all is so little. You gave us yourself. We give you our sin. We give you our struggles. We give you our failures. May we give them to you in the form of repentance, Father. <coughs> Knowing what lies ahead, your great promises. Lord God, we thank you for these letters to the church to exhort them and comfort them and convict them where need be. And may we take this comfort and conviction also into our own lives that you may sharpen us and purify us for your glory. It is in your son's name that we pray, amen. Where do you compromise? This concludes our service. May God bless you.